Hello and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing and mastering your music. Joining me this episode is someone who I think it's probably impossible for you to have not heard his work. Um, he is uh, film score mixer Alan Myerson. He's worked on The Lion King, Speed, Gladiator, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dark Knight, Inception, Thor Ragnarok, and Dune, which is an incredible roll call. But even before that, he had a history as a successful sound engineer in kind of more conventional, in, in straightforward music and ad recording, all kinds of things. So he has a huge breadth of experience. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Ian. It's kind of nice to be here. You left out a couple of things that probably they've heard even more than that, which would be like the Netflix logo, if you're a World Cup person, the World Cup theme, Thursday night football, all that stuff. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's... So, so you're everywhere, let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. I want to talk to Alan particularly about his approach to mixing and I'm going to say mastering for film. I don't know whether there's really a mastering stage as such for film. And that's one of the things we want to talk about because people often ask me about soundtracks. And uh, I've done a couple of indie movie soundtracks in the past, but that was basically a case of figuring out what the calibration level for the monitoring was and, you know, kind of making sure the surround sound was working. I'm fascinated to find out more about how you work and, and your approach to all of that stuff. But yeah, maybe you could start by just giving us a kind of a brief intro to how you how you came to be where you're doing the work that you're doing these days. Sure. Well, I, you know, I started in recording studios in 1977 out of college. I was a performance major in college and realized I didn't really had what it took to be a player. And I was a classical music major. I was a classical trumpet major. When I got out of college, I got a job in a studio like everyone else tries to do. And I, you know, I, I worked my way up and, and I did okay. You know, I skipped the early stuff. Uh, at a certain point in the mid eighties, I started working with some dance record producers like Arthur Baker and Mark Caymans and Shep Pettibone and guys like that. And I was really enjoying that. And I and then I got into the R&B world through um, Polygram and uh, did tons of R&B records. And through that, I started getting some very interesting projects, European stuff like Brian Ferry and New Order and Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark and things that were a little quirkier. And you know, my dream at the time was to be a kind of engineer producer in the style of Phil Ramone or a guy named Alex Satkin, who unfortunately passed away many years ago. Just as I was getting to that point where I felt like I had the skills to do it, the industry was changing. It was sort of the early 90s, and, and it got to a point where that role of an engineer producer was much harder to make a living at because everyone that was a producer had a studio in their house and could play keyboards and stuff like that. And I didn't have that skill set. So, uh, and I couldn't, and I wasn't a songwriter. I didn't know how to write. It dawned on me that being in that part of the world, that industry was, um, I'm not, I wasn't going to be an A-list guy, you know, and, and, uh, and not that I need to be an A-list guy, but I wasn't enjoying it either because hip hop had come in and I, I wasn't really connecting with the music that was being made in the nineties. I didn't really, you know, grunge wasn't my thing. And so, you know, it sort of limited what I would work on where I felt like I could add value. And also, I was a huge orchestral music lover, and I was—I liked film scores. I didn't really, you know, film scores didn't get on my radar as as an art form at that point. But um, I certainly loved orchestral music, and I loved orchestral writing, and I've always been a big instrumental music guy. So the thing that really turned me on in in the late '80s and early '90s was bands like Return to Forever and Weather Report and things that were more kind of fusion jazz rock and uh, and instrumental. So that was really where my heart was, was an instrumental. I was a big Chuck Mangione fan. I was a big Herb Alpert fan and, and uh, you know, Freddie Hubbard and Miles and all that stuff. So when I reached that point in early 94, where I, I just didn't know where I was meant to be. And, and I honestly, for a while, discovered that I might not want to be in the industry anymore. So... I was thinking about alternatives. I spent a lot of time walking on the beach and spending my last, you know, retirement fund that I stole from myself and and just basically getting by. And and uh, through a very weird kind of quirky coincidence that was sort of um, set up by me having a neighbor whose son wanted to be an engineer and I was getting him internships, 
I got introduced to the team that worked at, at the time, what was called Media Ventures, which was Hans's base of operations. And and uh, was invited down to just say hi. This was before I had ever met Hans and was hanging out. And they they asked me to come and engineer a session. So I did that and it went well. And then they asked me if what my skills are with orchestral music. And I, you know, I told them that I was you know, well-versed in orchestral music. I didn't mention that I wasn't well-versed in recording orchestral music, but, you know, in my early years, I did jingles. So I did have some experience recording small orchestral music, but, you know, my, I believe that I would be able to figure it out. And, and, um, I ended up in getting put on a session with Hans and, and, uh, on a movie called Renaissance Man. And it went really well. And, and so he offered me that film and, uh, you know, basically said to me, what are you doing for the next three months? And, and I said, I guess I'm working for you. And that was in 1994. And I'm still doing it. You know, I'm still working with Hans. I'm still working at remote control. My, I have a room at remote control, um, but I've expanded my, you know, my client list has been expanded to James Newton Howard and John Powell and Harry Gregson Williams and this guy named Chris Bowers and Pinar Toprock and, you know, for a while, Danny Elfman and so on and so forth. And I, you know, I came into the industry at a time when the industry was changing and I had a certain skill set because of my record years and my orchestral chops that sort of gave me a unique place to go. And Hans at the time was reinventing the, the medium. So uh, I was there for the reinvention and it led to a lot of success. And since then I've done about 300 movies and you know, countless video games and countless things, like I said, like the Netflix logo and uh, Sony, uh, Sony Pictures and or actually Sony Television and Paramount and stuff like that. And, and uh, you know, if it doesn't have a lead vocal, I'll mix it and I'll record it. And then the, the fun of it is I do get to record orchestras now and that's become my passion. It becomes what I love to do. I've been to Abbey Road about 30 times. I've been to Air Studios probably 20 times and, you know, I spend as much time as I can recording as I, you know, as I can. But, um, you know, I do a lot of mixing. So uh, sometimes I mix stuff I haven't recorded. Sometimes if I'm fortunate enough, I'll record it and mix it. And every now and then I get to produce it. It's fantastic. Thank you. And I'm sure everybody listening to this realizes, but just in case you don't, um, the Hans um, Alan is talking about is, of course, Hans Zimmer. And I think the breadth of your experience is one of the things that I think makes you so interesting to me, because it seems from what I can tell that you've brought a lot of the, or some of the, the kind of the, the, the music production sensibilities and methods into score mixing, right? So I've seen videos where you're, you know, adding saturation and distortion. I saw one where you pitch shifted the brass down an octave is not the kind of thing that I guess traditionally we think of as orchestral mixing, which I think I'm guessing is really cool and, and part of the the sound that you achieve. It is part of it now. It's just the interesting thing. And I feel like I, maybe I had a part of making that happen. But I remember the first time I had to do a session at Media Ventures. And it was with actually the guitar player from Culture Club, Roy Hay. And we were doing something with sort of a, 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 a kind of important rough mix and a vocal overdub and everything. And he's, you know, thinking I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm just a scoring guy. And he's like, you know, I want to create this effect of, you know, the synthesizers having this pulse. And, you know, there's a trick that I'm like, I got you, bub. And he's like, what do you mean you got me? And I said, I took the, you know, the click track and I put it into the key of a keypex and did it. And he's like, how do you know how to do that? I said, because I spent the last 15 years in the record business. What else do you need me to do? You know, uh, so, so yes, I was able to bring those skills into this and, you know, a more aggressive kind of approach towards percussion. So in, in terms with that, a more aggressive kind of approach with the whole, you know, palette. So at that time, I mean, I'm thinking 1994, you know, synths had been part of score for a long time, but it really sort of the game kind of started getting upped by the music, the music that was being done then. I remember like Peacemaker was a really hybrid score, you know, and, and I love hybrid music of all varieties. And you know, I love, like I said, jazz rock and fusion and all that stuff. That was sort of what lit my fire when I was young. So it was a perfect fit. That's, I mean, something that I love as well is, you know, when people incorporate real instruments into electronica or electronica into something that's more conventional. And I want to come back to all of that stuff. But just before we do, I'm curious about the recording side of things, because 
that's also something I think is really interesting about you is that, yeah, you're, you're mixing all this stuff, but also you're really hands-on at the recording stage, it seems like. I mean, so, because I kind of imagine people going to Abbey Road to record a film score and you could just kind of let the engineers get on with it. But I think you have quite strong ideas about mic placement and all that kind of stuff. Is that true? I do it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, it's not, I'm the engineer that they let get on with it. You know, I, I, I show up and, and that's my job. I'm a freelance engineer and, you know, I, I, a lot of people have come to Abbey Road now and, you know, I've been there enough times that I know the room very well. As a matter of fact, when, when I'm not there and it's a project for me, usually there's one or two guys that we, we get there who sort of know my style and my basic mic compliment and, and they do it there. But, you know, even recording in town, I, I recorded at every, you know, I recorded every stage and have for years, I've built up a tremendous mic collection, probably 130 mics now and, and uh, all my own amplifiers and, you know, multiple set of monitors. Some I have my, I have separate recording monitors for mixing monitors. And, and uh, so that's really, you know, if, if you're, if you're looking for the focus of my passion, that would be probably in recording large scale stuff. Focus of my business is probably mixing. Yeah, it's interesting. But I'm guessing that actually that is a huge part of maybe the success for you. I mean, if if you get it right when you record it, then to some extent it's going to mix itself. I, I don't mean that literally, but it's it's always works better when you've got got it right at the source. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and as I got more comfortable with my recording chops, you know, which you know happened thirty years ago. Um, I started, you know, being able to experiment in that world in a, in a similar way that I was experimenting in the mix world, you know, so I would try different microphone techniques and I would come, you know, I would sort of center down onto the styles of the things that I liked and, you know, miking techniques I, I love and choices of microphones and stuff. So, you know, I treat it, it's just all a big kind of like creative snowball and, and, um, Wherever you throw me, I'm going to try to figure out my way to do it. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that when I was in the record business, I kind of got lost in the greatness of some of the other engineers. And I found myself losing track of doing things that I thought was interesting and worrying more about, is the sound as good as Clear Mountain? Does the sound as good as Chris Lord Algae and stuff? And, you know, that it's such an easy way to lose your identity when you start identifying yourself compared to other people people. And I found in film music, although I respected tremendously my colleagues and my, you know, the the other guys who do what I do, Sean Murphy and Dennis Sands and, and, and a million other guys, um, I didn't try to emulate them. I realized that, you know, I was in a lucky situation of doing something different. And if people didn't like what I did, that was okay. You know, feel free to not like what I did, but enough people liked what I did. So I was able to keep working. And still keep working. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> clearly. Um, so maybe you can just kind of give us an outline of the the kind of process when you're working on film in terms of, so I'm guessing you've got, you're multi-miking the orchestra, all of that gets recorded, multi-track, and then you, you bring that in. And I mean, do synths come first? Do synths get added afterwards? Does it depend? Sure. When you say synths, you know, there's a combination of samples and, and stuff. It, you, since to me are since you know they're it's a juno it's a zebra yeah, and right. stuff like that but there's a lot of organic samples some of which i've actually recorded and orchestral samples sometimes they get used and sometimes they don't usually all that comes out of the composer's uh writing room and comes to me and then with that we add all of the new live elements be it an orchestra be it uh brass or a choir or drum overdubs or guitar solos or any one of a thousand air who's and, you know, Gujangs and stuff like that. Just a limitless, uh, you know, menu of stuff that could end up in front of a microphone with me, and which is a ton of fun. And always, and fortunate in this way, the best players in the world. You know, I, I'm lucky enough to work with the NBA every single day. Every single person I work with was the best player in their college by far, you know, and, and, and that's a lot of fun. Um, so when I bring it into the mix world, what I what I do is I combine all those elements. And what I'm going to ultimately deliver is I'm going to deliver a full mix, which is either going to be in, you know, uh, 5.1, 7.1, or Atmos, or even sometimes quad, depending on what the needs are of the client. 
But what I'm more importantly going to do is I'm going to deliver stems where there's, depending on the movie and the style and the reasons, they could be anywhere from five to 30 uh, stems of the elements of my mix separated out that when you play it together at zero level with no EQ and no compression, equal my full mix, which is where stem mastering comes in because there is no after me for anyone to do that other than the dubbing mixer to get into the weeds with that. And, and so what I try to do is give him something that is as finished as it can be when he sits down with it. And, and uh, that's my sort of mastering environment is the, if you were to see my session, you would see, um, you would see my full mix, my stereo down mix. And then next to it could, would be a, a grouping of either 7.1, 5.1 or at most sometimes, not often at most, um, uh, individual, you know, strings, brass, woodwinds, nests, if we did the woodwinds or solos, low percussion, mid percussion, high percussion, synths, uh, you know, rhythmic synths, linear synths. So depending on the project and the, and the reason I'm stemming, because there's many reasons to stem, not just, it's not for them to remix it at the stage, it's for them to have the ability to deal with certain issues down the road. And like if they change the picture and need to do an edit, they need to be able to, if, if they were forced to edit the entire mix, then that wouldn't be in the music's best interest as opposed to being able to maybe keep the strings going and take out this and that so it clears a new sound effect that exists or stuff because you know that's the X factor that I don't have the answer. So I'm the last guy to touch the music on, um, on a micro level. And then when it gets to the stage, it's more of a macro level where they're basically riding the entire score. And in addition to that, if there is a, you know, a woodwind solo that gets in the way of a piece of dialogue, they can pull that down or out. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I was, I was curious about why, why you would need to deliver stems given that you determine the mix, right? I didn't imagine that anybody would, would kind of come in and say, oh, you know what? He's, he's made, uh, yeah, the, the brass too loud at this point or whatever. But you're basically saying it's it's kind of to give them control in terms of... Yeah, but there is some of precision. that too. You know, you got to remember film is, a, it's a weird world. It's, you know, there are a tremendous amount of decision makers in film. So, so there are a lot of people that have what we call temp love, which for you guys is like, you know, or in the music world, imagine like when you do a rough mix and everyone just wants it to sound like the rough mix, mm. just, just professional, right? And... I deal with that all the time. So I spend a lot of time making sure that when they go from what they're used to having in their Pro Tools rig or their Avid and to my mix, that the thing that's going to blow them away is the width, depth, the size, but the balances are going to be pretty close to what they have. So there are times when you'll come in and a director will say, you know, I'm not quite getting the same thing out of that. What's different? And then they'll listen. Oh, the percussion was maybe a little bit louder there. So they can then have the control to push that up instead of it coming back to me. So there is a creative purpose to it, but it's not just a wholesale. I'm sending them. It's not like they're getting a, a multi-track and they're going to mix it from scratch. They're putting all the faders at zero, what, what is called the yardstick mix, and they're playing it like that. And then they adjust as is necessary you know, also the fact that I'm, you know, mixing in a in a beautiful mix room, but it is still just a, a you know, a mix room. It's not a, it's not a theater. And when you add that much distance with speakers and stuff, sometimes there are there are things that you have to compromise or complement with low end and you know certain things of clarity and stuff like that. So you, if you don't give them that kind of control, the the downside is it'll come back to you. Now, having said that, there are movies that I've done that where we just said, no, we're going to mix it. And then I might give them percussion separate from the orchestra, you know, and, and that's it. Um, I, you know, depend, it depends on the project and it depends on the competence of the mixers I'm delivering it to what we call dubbing mixers. If it's a guy I work with a lot and trust, and I've known, I'll give him all the control in the world. But if it's a dude that I know is the guy who puts reverb on, on, you know, fast drum parts or puts the guitar in the surrounds, he, he's not going to have the flexibility to do that, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of, you know, most of the time can make that decision. But the good news is we've reached a point now where all of the cream has risen to the top. So almost all the dubbing mixers I work with are phenomenally talented. 
You mentioned um, putting guitars in the surrounds, and I was curious about that. How much you typically use the the surround aspects, whether it be 7.1 or or the height in Atmos? I'm imagining not that much in an orchestral context, but maybe a lot more with yeah samples and synths and stuff where you've got effects. Is that right? Well, yes and no. Um, it's the Atmos thing is a different conversation because I actually don't mix that often in Atmos when I deliver to a stage because it's easy for them to implement Atmos with my mix than it is for them to have to deal with my Atmos when it comes in and has to deal with sound effects and also all the objects I would be taking up. You know, so so usually I deliver 7.1, but I do occasionally deliver Atmos. But the answer to your question is, depending on the kind of movie, imagine if you had a movie where sounds were coming from the back and it made you turn around to see what's going on back there. Your filmmakers would not be happy about that. You know, so the job of music and everything in a film is to support the film and the dialogue, as I like to say, the dialogue is my lead vocal. So, so it's definitely forward focused, but that doesn't mean it can't have, you know, it's not just reverb in the back. Like I'll, you know, I'll take a, you know, my synth pass and, and uh, I'll duplicate it and, and, you know, do something very interesting to it and put it in the back or in a world where there's maybe two parts that are playing the same, that add up to one sound, I put, might put one of them in the back and one of them in the front. I, I tend to avoid uh, moving solo instruments off the front. And when I think the front, the front to me is is not just the, the, the screen, but it's the 20% that goes to either the left or the right of the screen, which is my 7-1 speakers. When I think of the front, I want to keep my energy there. Unless there's a creative decision made by the composer or the director, it's like, can we have the choir come from behind, you know? And then if that's the request, then we do, then that's easy to do, you know? And so I'll do all that. And that's, that happens a thousand times. That happens every project. But for the most part, um, I'm not looking to, you know, do a pop mix where, you know, the, like the, I use the example, the Eagles, the hell freezes over when they did their surround mix and they had a voice in each speaker. That's mm -hmm. not, that's not what I'm really looking to do. It's, it's not my style. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just not my style. So it, it's definitely a forward focused, uh, uh, sound field, but with a lot of richness and a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, depth. Great. Yeah. So if you're delivering seven, one mix, um, and they're good, and obviously the film's probably going to be mixed in Atmos. They would basically just um, route those out to either a, a bed or an object bed to put the, everything in the, in the same places that you have it, unless they decide to do something creative for some reason at a later stage. Yeah, I mean, but also it could be something where you know they they don't just have two beds. They might they might have you know, as many as four. What what I call boxes, you know. So you could you if you have that then. You could like put the say the brass are separate. You could put the brass up one box, you know, and and create a lot of depth without really changing the perspectives, you know. So that's a very cool way to use Atmos and film. That doesn't necessarily need me to deliver them a separate Atmos environment, which you know I I can do that and I do do that depending on projects. And you know there have been films where I've worked on where I did this movie Gem Gemini Man with Ang Lee, this Will Smith movie and. They wanted me to mix native Atmos. So they actually flew me to New York and put me on a dub stage and let me do what would be considered a final Atmos mix with elements moving around with, you know, just as we heard it, he wanted to create that sort of immersive thing in that. And he felt that that was the best way to do it. And the reason he did that was because he was here at remote control, uh, working on the scoring of it with Lauren Balfe and he came into my room and I played him the the new Lion King, the one we did like five years ago. Um, and I mixed that in native Atmos and he listened to my mixes, some of my mixes in that and said, that's what I want. So, but I want you to do it in New York because I want to be able to come over at night and listen to it. So I'm like, ah, oh, okay. Free trip to New York, staying in a nice hotel. Sure. Absolutely. From what you've described, you're effectively the mastering engineer in inverted commas, because you have more or less the final say on on what the mix is going to be, where the placement is going to be, and the dub, they're balancing that with effects and dialogue and all the rest of it. Does that mean that the loudness 
in terms of a specification is not that important to you because people often ask me, oh, if I'm delivering for broadcast, for example, you know, how do I deal with loudness? And there's a number that you can give people there. And I know that in in theatres you have the Dolby guidelines uh, in terms of dial norm and all that kind of stuff. But if, I mean, virtually everything you do is going to be adjusted at the dub, right? Because they will be deciding how loud we want the music at this stage. So I guess that's not that critical for you. Is that true? Or? No, it's not critical. I don't think about the loudness spec at all. The only spec I think about is, is you know, I actually, if, if, strangely enough, if you think about it, I try to print a level which will give them the music sitting at about halfway up the fader so that they have plenty of room to make it louder or make it quieter. Right. You know, it used to be like, people wanted to print stuff as hot as you can get it. And then the music would be sitting so far down that you lost all of your sort of range in, in the low end for, you know, the, to be able to ride it. You know, if, if you're down in your logarithmic scale down at like 5%, then you have nowhere to go, you know? Mm. So, so I think about that and, uh, but I do master it. I do a mastering process on my stems that I then print through to print tracks. Well, that's interesting. Can you, can you say a bit more about that? Sure. That's what. I, that's why I'm here. You know, at the very least, there's going to be a limiter that is set to minus one dB, and I'm, I use very, very often this uh, whole grain quartet. Do you know? You know about that? No, I don't. Oh, it's great. It's and I'll, and the reason I use it. Well, one is to support a small company. You know, and I've been using it for a long time, and I've become sort of one of their beta testers. It's a very um, elegant, very difficult to use thing that I just have my preset that I use. And basically what it is, is it's it, it, my preset number one is, is zero additional gain and minus one dB on the in my, my ceiling. And with the slightest amount of dynamic EQ in the 250 range and the, 2000, and the 2K range, just to really do the final little tap of the muddiness and the the aggressiveness and it does it very very and the reason i like to use that one is because it is it is absolutely transparent in doing that and no matter how fast the compress you know, like i can set an attack time to almost zero and i won't get any distortion or any sort of you know kind of over modulation or anything like that so i love it for that but that i also use other ones too but so at the very minimum there's that and and that sort of gives me my basic control. Now, depending on the score, if the score is an, an aggressive score, like I just did this uh, Zack Snyder movie, uh, Rebel Moon, which is coming out now, and uh, with Junkie XL, and, you know, I know that he likes things aggressive. And, and I'll get aggressive in my, you know, while I'm working with the individual sounds, but that mastering level gives me that final spot to be able to make a decision that is sort of a global decision. And I really think of it globally. I don't, it's not that I never do, but I, it's very rare when I'll go into one of my stems and do anything different than is any of the other ones. So in a case like that, I might add an inflator. In that case, I did add an inflator and I might even add some sort of analog emulation or, you know, uh, another mastering, you know, something that has a coloration that is interesting to me, like, uh, Mauer Applebaum has this thing called the oven, which I like a lot. And uh, sometimes I'll use the isotope stuff. Uh, but the thing about the isotope stuff for me is I, I get lazy and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to find a preset and do everything. And then I feel like, well, did I really give it my best shot? You know, and so mm -hmm. usually when when I feel like that, I go in and 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 there's a few things that I do. But basically, I'm mastering. I'm I'm coming up with what I think that the score should sound like. Uh, and I'm not looking for anyone to do any additional widening or any, do any additional um, other than riding it to to go along with dialogue and sound effects. You know, there's no loudness choices that are necessary to make and and all that. Uh, it just it's it's my last sort of stand as to this is what the score is going to sound like. And then what I do is once I get that sound, I I take that and I print it to a full mix, both in seven one stereo and sometimes even in quad. And when I deliver that to the composer to get notes, they are hearing the final mix. There's no additional uh, limiting. Well, there's a brick wall, but I don't hit it. There's no additional processing. There's no additional anything. It's just a simple, what you're hearing right now is what the stems will sound like when you get to the stage. And that is the 
number one thing I have to do is I, I can't, you know, a lot of people, they like to put that last phase of mastering in on the, on the full mix. And, you know, in the record world, we always think about that compression threshold, controlling it and gluing it all together and stuff. And that's just something I've learned to not have to worry about in my world. I actually, even when I make records, which I still do occasionally, I still find it better to do that. I'm not a big, uh, you know, I don't, I don't do that master bus glue as much as other people do. And that's the way I do it. And, and it's very successful. Having said that, when I do my soundtrack album, which is me making the final decision at the loudness and stuff, actually, it is still going to go to a mastering engineer. I, I don't, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm an adult enough yet to be able to, you know, put the necessary uh, coatings on it and stuff like that. So I'm still going <laughs> to deliver it to a, a, a mastering engineer, but they're not really going to need to do much in terms of leveling or sound because I'll do what I call my pre-mastering, which is, you know, one of various chains, you know, some of them I have are analog chains, uh, you know, very simple. I, I, I have a ear 825 EQ that I like to put across it. I have a Varimu that's slightly modified and then a, um, an Allen Smart CS1. And a lot of times that's just my chain that I use. And then I bring it back into Pro Tools and then just add a, a brick wall on that. Or I have like five or six different sort of combinations of, of plugins that I'll use just for the stereo mix or if we're releasing a surround version or an Atmos version for that. Yeah, that's something I'm interested in. I mean, so the difference between a mix that you're doing for theatres and one that is going to be listened to primarily at home, but also whether the, if you're doing a, if you're going to do a soundtrack album, is that a different stereo mix than you would have done? Or is it basically the same thing and you've just kind of tweaked? There is no stereo mix for the theatre. The stereo mix is just, it's, it's deliverable. It's what they call deliverable. It's just something you have to do that does represent the score. Given the opportunity uh, and the time uh, if I'm allowed to take my stems and relook at them as a stereo world without having to have it be perfect for surround, I will take that time because it's worth it every time. It's not just the processing. It's also making some creative decisions where you might have a sound is there because it's marking something on the screen that might not make any sense in just a pure musical environment. Mm -hmm. So you can adjust that stuff. Symbols that are way too loud and drums that are played matching what's on the screen and stuff like that. You can have that last pass to do that. And at the same time, you know, I can you know, I can have my last shot at what I want. You know, early on, I didn't do that. I was, I was very, very um, careful about not doing too much on the mastering side so that I would leave room for them. I would always send things 4 dB below. Uh, where I thought it should be with a slightly less amount of top end, because I always feel that no matter what you do, someone's going to put top end on it. So I figured instead of them, instead of putting, as I like to say, a hat on a hat I, I, or vanilla syrup on vanilla ice cream, um, I, I just sort of give them room to do that. And I sometimes do that still, but I, I've been sort of over the years told by my mastering engineers that, you know, what I do tends to work. So, so I'll do it. And, you know, then I'll add a tiny bit of, you know, widening and sort of from the uh, upper mids up, I'll, I'll add a little bit of imaging, open it up because the center channel information can get a little bit, you know, depending on the balance of my down mix, even with a perfect balance, it, it still benefits sometimes from a little bit of widening. And I might do a little bit of dynamic EQ or, or dynamic compression and, and, um, I don't know, you know, do, anything's possible, you know, just whatever my latest, newest plugin is, I'm, is going to end up on there somewhere. And how often do you get the opportunity? You, you said, if I have the chance to go back to the stems and revisit them. Almost every know? project. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I have to pay for it though. You know, it's yeah. like, I just did this huge video game, uh, Jedi Survivor. It's very successful. We did eight and a half hours of music recorded live at Abbey Road. I recorded it. A lot of it was done live with everyone in the room. Some of it because of COVID, we separated the brass, but it was a lot of music, 215 cues, uh, you know, what we call cues, which are basically little songs and some mm -hmm. of them big songs. And, um, and I mixed it all. And then they just, they put together a soundtrack album and sent me the edit and asked me what I thought. I said, that's great, but you're going to let me redo it. And like, no, we don't have the budget for that. I said, hold on. These were never meant to go on the soundtrack album. Do me a favor, just trust me. I was a producer, so I could say this. 
proof of concept. Let me send you four of the most important cues with my pre-mastering on it. And then you guys tell me what you think. And, and so uh, be careful what you wish for. I did that. I sent it to them. They loved it. And we decided to do it that way. So now, of course, I had to remix 80 cues to get that. Now, they, it's not like a full mix. I, I, don't, it, I do 10 a day or something or me, even more. But it, I, it just gave me that last chance to do something magic with it. You know, a lot of that is just fairy dust voodoo. And I don't know exactly, like, I was listening to one of your shows where you were getting very specific and technical. And it's like, you know, I understand all that stuff, but that my brain doesn't think that way. So, so it just gives me a last chance to make it as, as great and as full of depth and width and height and, and warmth and sparkle that I can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, I guess that's what we do as well, but I think, I do think mastering is more technically oriented probably. Yes. And, and you guys are so good at it and, and I always benefit from it. And many times, uh, you know, that adds the last, you know, the last quarter inch to my yardstick. And, and, uh, but I find that there are certain things that I do. They're not just a, a standard way, a standard thing that happens in mastering that I'm going to want to do. And some of that has to do with image control and, and, and stuff like that. And, and some, um, kind of multiband dynamics and, and, uh, and some of it is just, you know, what I'm used to. And there are many times where I'll go like, well, I've really done a lot here. Why I better deliver them something that doesn't have all this. And then they can decide which one is better. And I'm not against that at all. I mean, this isn't an ego thing. It's just, it's just, I want the best thing ever. But the important thing for me is sort of that last chance to do a balance, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You um, mentioned there the the center channel, and that's something that I'm curious about. And and people often, well, I'm I'm hearing people debating a lot about that with especially Atmos production of music. Um, you know, we have this new thing now with Apple Music, Tidal, well aware of it. Amazon. The first Dune was one of the first Atmos scores that that Apple Music took as sort of a test ride huh, to see really? how it was going to sound. So that was my score. Yeah, very cool. So you're using the center channel. I, I've heard some people say, oh, the center channel is exclusively for dialogue, but I'm guessing there are no rules. Not true. In a music-only mix, it's used sparingly as sort of like where the center of my orchestra is. And I don't really use it much for anything that comes in, you know, that isn't uh, already embedded with it or that's live. Like sometimes a solo instrument, I'll put the dry signal in the center and then the reverbs around. But I tend to... Even if I do that, I'll, I'll sort of, I'll divert it from just the center to maybe all three speakers a little bit. In music, Apple Atmos mixing for music, I am discovering that the popular thing to do is to put like the, the lead vocal, the bass drum, the snare drum dead in the center, only to the center speaker. That's something uh, I respect because the people that I've seen do it, I respect. But I have to wrap my head around it because to me, I can't get away from that narrowness I feel when I sit in front of a near field Atmos environment and I hear that, you know, so it's a, it's a work in progress for me, that, that one. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I haven't done any Atmos work myself yet, but there are definitely some people who are saying that. And then there's other people who say the exact opposite. Um, and then there's people who say you put it in a bed in the center and yeah, anyway, we, we could go off down that rabbit hole, but um you mentioned again there the difference between a near field and a theater atmos mix. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Well, yeah, when you're near field, like you're working, say, on a video game or something like that, or even a record, if you're doing an atmos mix, that it's only ever going to be listened to in near field. So there's different sort of rules that apply when it comes to management of low end and, you know, do they, will they have a proper subwoofer? Will they have a proper center channel? And stuff like that. When I when I am working in a near field environment, I do use a little less center channel and a little less subwoofer because I don't necessarily know what it's going to. You know, it, it's honestly it's still the wild west because they don't. There is no standard for like home. I mean, there is a standard, but that's assuming people are going to buy what is the standard. And you know, usually consumers don't do it that way. So <laughs> the big difference is low end. It's just the low end tends to ruminate in a large theater. The subwoofers tend to be less musical, um, so they're more effects. That we actually even call it that an LFE, a low frequency effect channel, and that's used. You know, you can imagine what it's used for. You know, bombs and cars and 
you know, big bottom stuff. Like I'll put big low end booms and stuff in it. Uh, the low end of a, of a linear sort of synth, a synth pad or something, if it's a deep synth pad. Uh, but in near field, it, you don't have that. So you have to be much more articulate about it when you do a theatrical release and, and more careful with how much you use near field. It's just a different way to think about it. You know, in, in like in my system, my near field system, you know, my subwoofers do have a musical sound to them. So I can actually get away with putting a little bit more down there, although I'm not really in the habit of doing that. But sometimes if it's an orchestra only score, I might put a little bit of the orchestra in the subwoofer. That's interesting. You mentioned since again there, and that was something I wanted to ask you about. I imagine it's quite challenging balancing synths with orchestral elements. I mean, just based on my own experience, it's like if you have, you know, let's say an acoustic, I don't know, jazz band or just acoustic instruments and you're, you're recording them, as soon as you start adding compression to one thing, suddenly, because that thing is much more consistent, everything else starts to need to be more consistent and either you end up automating the death out of it or compressing everything. And I think by their very nature, most synth sounds are much more consistent than an orchestra, a string section, you know, or a brass section or whatever. Is is that something you found or does that just kind of come naturally because of your experience? Absolutely. It's, I'll even take it one step further that you can, the orchestra can be one thing when it's not going to have to live, uh, coexist, and then it's something else when it does. And, and really, once you go hybrid, if I was to take my perfectly recorded Abbey Road Orchestra or someone's perfectly recorded Abbey Road Orchestra, without any EQ or without any compression. I don't do a lot of percussion, but I, I do do some dynamic compression on, on orchestra and put it up against a hybrid score. It would sound dull as anything, you know, it just, it, it, it's a completely different type type of top end. So I immediately, when I'm dealing a hybrid score, I basically, I'm either going to darken my pre-recorded stuff to match the orchestra, or I'm going to brighten the orchestra to match the pre-recorded stuff. And that's usually the, the way you go. And it doesn't take a lot. I mean, I can do it with a Pultec sometimes. Sometimes I use a lot more processing. I'll use harmonic processing on the orchestra. You know, uh, there's a, a lot of saturators I'll use on it. I, you know, this black box thing I really like a lot. The, again, the inflator I really like a lot. And as the cues, like on big action cues, I might get even more aggressive, you know. And, and, and so basically you have to keep it in the... Um, sort of intend that the cue is necessary. Basically, there's two worlds, of three worlds of composers. There's composers that want you to blend the live orchestra with their samples, where the samples are the most important thing and the live orchestra is support. There are the reverse of that, where they want you to blend them, but the samples sit back and the live orchestra is the sound and the samples just give you a little bit more of the this sort of artificial yet very familiar sounding with. And then there's the guys that want to keep it organic. So, you know, that, you know, Hans and I used to like have, we'd always laugh because, you know, I would balance it, then he'd come in and turn up the samples or turn down the orchestra. And then I'd come back in and turn down the samples half as much and turn up. It's like a negotiation, you know, and, and, and it's like that. So, so, you know, all these things matter. And depending on, on the score, um, if it's a very organic sounding score with a couple of, you know, synth pads, then yes, it's going to have maybe less top end. It's going to be, you know, the or, there'll be more automation involved. And, uh, but if it's like, if it's a wall of sound with an orchestra, then the orchestra is just one of the elements. Is that typically a decision you make on a per project basis or do you just do it per queue? Yeah, that's a great question. I do it by listening to their ref, their mock-up, and see where how it's sitting. You know, if if it's sitting very aggressive, then I sort of know. But the philosophy of what the ratio is is something that that travels the entire project, and then might change. Like for there's this interesting thing that people are used to the sound of string marcados, which are basically a short string note, but the marcado samples tend to be longer than what happens when you play live, and if you don't put those short string samples in, it it really does change the intent. So that's a place where you'll have to play with the level. There are times where they use samples to create a low end that's just not realistic in the world, but you need it. So you have to make all those choices and stuff. But once I sort of know 
what my philosophy is in terms of how much I'm going to use the samples versus live. And usually for me, it's it's somewhere between 80, 20, 20% being samples. Um, and, and uh, you know, I get forced up to 60, 40. And once I'm at 50, 50, then I'm, then I'm, a, I'm in, you know, I have certain composers that 50, 50 is, you know, they, they're actually wanting it louder even. Right. If you were to hear it with the samples, you wouldn't go, oh, there are samples in there. It would just sound big and large and great, you know, which is different than it used to be. You know, back in the Pirates days, we weren't afraid to let you hear the samples. But now I try to be a little bit more elegant with it. Well, it's interesting because I'd, I'd never realized until I saw your video that there were synth lines in the Pirates of the Caribbean theme, just for example. But that's um, the beauty of it, you know. Yeah. All the low end is doubled. All the bass lines are doubled with like a bass and, and um, it just adds a size that isn't possible in the real world. But, you know, who wants it to be? I, do I care that they can't perform it at Carnegie Hall? Yeah, you know, they can. All they have to do is have a little bit of a pre-record going. And we've done that. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, you've mentioned a few times, you know, using... Uh, pull text and uh you know kind of saturators and things i've i've seen a video where you were using uh fabfilter is it fabfilter satin yeah are there projects where you just wouldn't touch that stuff or is that just a standard part of your palette that you bring in whenever you need to achieve a certain effect is that a go-to technique that you use yeah it's a standard part of my palette but i might use them so subtly that i'm really just using them more for eq or even for dynamics you know you can use a saturator that'll squeeze the frequency range together a little bit because the timbre of the signal is is affecting the saturation or the decay or something like that. So there's a lot of plugins that, like for example, I use the uh, the Devil Lock, the Eventide Devil Lock, and and uh, which is a very aggressive plugin. But if you use it from between a half and one and a half in the mix, all it does is add this beautiful kind of sustain. So if I want to get something that'll peek through a little bit but still sound organic. That's a trick I use. And people look at it, they go, what are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, you know, this is what I do. And I said, close your eyes and listen to it. And they're like, yeah, I mean, I put spring reverbs on basses. I'm a weird guy, you know? So there was a great expression that Ed Cherney used to say, no one dances to a Poltec. You know, it's just, however I get there is how I get there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's probably a great place to wrap up, to be honest. I don't want to um, take too much of your time, but if, if you do have time just to talk about one other thing, you mentioned something that intrigued me when you're talking about Atmos, you said that there are different boxes. And I, th I think I've heard you talk about this, um, that you kind of have, there's almost height levels in the, in the Atmos mix that you think about. Yes. There's a dubbing mixer named Ron Bartlett, who has been one of my dearest friends for 30 years and also one of the finest dubbing mixers in the world. We did do together. He won the Academy Award for best sound mixing. They don't give it to the music guys. <laughs> I tell you how that feels. Um, or I'd have seven of them. Uh, but uh, he was the guy that sort of turned me on to the idea of the boxes. So I don't want to ever talk about that without giving him credit. And it's exactly that. It's like you have something that sits in the bed, that's the bed. And then the next one is maybe halfway or a third of the way up and 10% back. And the next one is a, another third of the way up and 30% back. And then the next one is the objects, you know, and, and so you can basically create different levels or the uh, Atmos stuff. And the way you set up the session, it, you can make quick choices. I have to work fast. If I don't work fast, I get lost in the details. I like to do, and I've said this before, I like to do 90% of the work in 10% of the time, and then spend the other 90% of the time on the last 10%. Mm -hmm. I find that I'm better when I'm not overthinking, basically in everything in life, but certainly when it comes to music mixing. Yeah, that's a great a great point. Uh, I, and I agree. It's Well, it's that thing of being in the zone, isn't it? That happened to me on a live stream a little while back. I was demonstrating something and I had accidentally put my screen to sleep. And what I didn't realise that when I did that, the screen share stopped. So I was busy talking to people and demonstrating what I was doing and just kind of really getting into the music. And the, when I eventually went back to the chat, they were like, we can't see what you're doing, um, <laughs> which is a great exercise for them, right? Because we should mix with our ears, not with our eyes anyway. But it, That's why yeah, they call us engineers, you know? Yes, absolutely. But I mean, like I'm sitting here right now talking to you and I'm staring at my Pro Tools screen on the piece of music I'm working on and I'm mixing in my head. You know, it's like I'm making, I'm making level decisions and you know, oh, did I have reverb on that? Let me make sure. This is what we do. I mean, this is uh, the great thing about doing your hobby for a living. 
is uh, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like you're uh, working. But then the bad thing is when you dream about it round and round in circles. Did you get that? I, uh, last night I had one that was just a doozy. Hey, I want to tell you how much I appreciate you and and I appreciate this podcast channel and. You know, for me, it was, uh, I discovered you because I was trying to make sure something I had discussed at Mixed with the Masters, I was giving them, the, I, I had this belief of what I thought, you know, um, True Peak was. And uh, and so I explained it. And then I thought to myself, am I explaining it right? And then I listened to your podcast and I realized I was, maybe not as intelligently as you did, but what the information I gave them was correct. And then I listened, you know, I backed up and I listened to more of your stuff. And I just want to say, you're really doing a great service out there. And, and uh, you know, your stuff is very interesting and, and listenable. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And likewise, thank you. I appreciate you. And thank you for coming on and talking about all this stuff. It's really fascinating. Are there any particular places that you would recommend where if people want to find out more about what you're doing or get in touch with you, they can go? Well, Mixed with the Masters is certainly one of them. You can go on there and I have a lot of videos on there and stuff like that. And Pure Mix, I have some videos on Pure Mix. There's another one that's going up, I think, at the end of this week about mixing about mixing uh, the Jedi Survivor score. There's a lot of content in Google. And, you know, usually at, Na at NAMM, I, uh, at the NAMM shows, I'll do a presentation or two and stuff like that. But basically, if you want to get into the weeds with it, Mixed with the Masters is, is where to go. Pretty soon I'm going to get Alan Meyerson Music working as a website, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. I've been too busy. That's fantastic. And thank you. And I do want to recommend anybody listening to this should check that stuff out because Alan, the, the videos that I've seen of Alan's, he really does go into all of the technical details and the creative details that we're all so interested in there. You're guaranteed to get some interesting stuff out of those videos. I'm going to be um, digging into more of them after this. So, Alan, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Likewise. And thanks, as always, to John for editing and mastering the episode, to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music, and thanks to you for listening.